Well, I like a good movie. I like a good story. I said a few weeks ago, I confessed to you, and I even had some number of men in the room that joined the the Men Like Chick Flicks Club. Um, uh, so I'm not going to ask you to show your hands again. I know that took a lot, and you probably had to seek counseling after uh, for uh, revealing that. Or you got uh, maybe a, a series of Chick Flicks movies thrown at you because you said that. But um, anyway, I like a good love story. I'm not a writer of love stories, so I want to step back into the 19th century and draw one out and kind of start my message today by telling you a beautiful love story. Soren Kierkegaard, a Norwegian-born philosopher of the 18th century, you probably studied him in in college and you forgot as soon as you could, Uh, but uh, he told this incredible story of a man who fell in love with a woman. Now, not real creative there, but what happens is this was uh, just a common man, but what was maybe a little bit impressive was that he fell in love with an even less common woman. In fact, she was a woman that kind of had a reputation. She was a woman that wasn't as pretty as some of the other women, but this man fell in love. I mean, he was smitten with love for her. He didn't have two nickels that he could rub together himself. He, he was not exactly uh, the wealthiest man, obviously. Ne- neither did he even have a home to live in. But he fell in love with this woman. And one thing about this man is he was a good man. He was a good, good, godly man. And he loved this woman dearly. And he had to figure out how he was going to win her to himself. But he did. But that's not where the story begins. The story begins when Soren Kierkegaard writes this statement, suppose there was a king who loved a humble maiden. That's how the story begins. There was a king who loved a humble maiden. But I thought you said he was a pauper. He was a man who was poor. And listen to the rest of the story. The the story is of this king who was very wealthy, very powerful, very influential throughout the land. In fact, all the other surrounding lands would fear this king. If they ever rose up, uh, his troops rose up, then they would quietly bow down to him. They would never oppose him. They, was all, they were always very gracious to this powerful king. He was, he was a good king, but he was also a very powerful king. And this king fell in love with this common maiden woman who was pretty unsightly maybe, or maybe had a little bit more of a reputation, maybe even had some baggage. But he fell in love with her. And he wanted to know how he could get her to love him, not because of his palace, not because of his prestige, not because of his throne or his crown or what what he would be able to escape her from. Because he knew that if he was to send his his couriers down to, to tell this woman that the king up in the palace loved him, loved her, that she would be in love with him at least because of where it would help her to go and the better life and the palace and the, the prestige that she would have. So what he did in the ingenuity of his mind is he left the throne, he left the palace, he left the royalty, he left the, pal- the, 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 the plushness of it all, and he puts on common rag clothes and dwells among the people and lives among the people and wins this woman's heart. Not her head, because of where she could go, but her heart. And as he loves her and cares for her, then he reveals to her in this love story that I am the king and you can come to my palace. 
Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist. You can go to Sunday school probably one day and figure out who I'm referring to in this story. But as you think about this story, this is what Kierkegaard said at the end of his story. He says, for love is exultant when it unites equals. But love is triumphant. Love wins when it makes that which is unequal equal in love. There's this beautiful thing that happens whenever someone who steps down from a king, down from a palace, down from power and prestige, and comes among us in this fairy tale story, if you will, is not so fairy tale, but it's the story of our Savior. And we need to just bask in it a little longer today to realize that Jesus was born in a manger so that we could be born in heaven. Jesus came to us so that we could go to him. Jesus was born once so that we could be born twice. And may we never get over the power of that reality. We come to this story today. We're finishing up our study in the book of 1 John. So if you're first time with us, you're kind of on the back side of this, but that's great. You can have a lot of homework in the weeks ahead going back through the beginning of this. We're, we're studying from the beloved disciple of Jesus. So you can't talk about love and not talk about John. John is the only disciple that's called the beloved disciple. It doesn't mean he hated the others. It just means that there was a special place in Jesus' heart for John. John is also the one who spoke more about love than anybody else in the New Testament. So if you're going to understand love and you're going to understand it from a, uh, from a scriptural worldview or perspective on life, you need to study from John the Apostle. And so let's go to John chapter 5 and let's look there where we're going to kind of unpack it today and kind of put the bow on the package, uh, if you will, on this passage now or on the, on, on the study. Now let's just hit review though real quickly. Three things that I think we need to remember that we have learned from 1 John. And we really drove it home last week and that this is what love is. God is love. We just need to understand that God is love. Now, not love is God. Some people will fall in love with love. Some will say we need to have more love in this world. And that's true. But how do you get more love? You get to know more of God. And once we understand God and once God becomes in all fullness and manifestation in us, and this, he's an infinite God, so there's plenty enough for us to go around, plenty enough for God to go around, that, that we are really invading this world with love, permeating this world with love when we are who God is in us, okay? When we let him be in us who he is, then, then, then God's love is coming out. Now, another thing about love is love is light, now, again, a lot of people like that metaphor. Love is light. Love should not be in darkness. If you're married to somebody and there's darkness in that marriage and there's hidden secrets in that marriage and there's things that are going on in the home, it could be in the marriage, it could be, it could be with, with the children. When there's darkness and deception that are going on, that is not a manifestation of love, okay? That does not breed love. That does not breed trust, and so I think we could know that and probably figure that out very quickly. But it, it talks about, again, in the book of 1 John chapter 2, verse 10, it talks about that love is light and light is connected to love. It's inseparable. But another thing about love, love is truth. You cannot get away from love that you will not also have truth. 
And truth and love go hand together. That's why even when John, when Paul was talking, he told us that we should speak the truth in love. And that's why whenever you look at the writings of John and all of John's writings, so it's not just Paul, it's John, John constantly marries, joins the two together. Truth comes with love and love comes with truth. All right, so again, get past the secondhand emotion that we talked about last week. Get past the Hollywood version of love that you see. Get past what you think love is, and let's get back to it. Love is from God because God is love. Love is light, and love is truth. Where there's not truth, there is not a manifestation of love. John says it again and again. John writes about it in 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. He says, little children, let us love in word. Let us not love in word and talk but in deed and in truth. What was, Paul, what was John saying? You cannot separate truth from love. It go, they go together hand in glove. Second John chapter 3. Now, this is the second letter of John. He said, from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the, fa- the, uh, uh, the Father's Son, in truth and love. He's opening up his letter, his second letter that he writes. He says, I'm writing you not just in truth and not just in love, but truth and love. And he does the same thing in 3 John. I just want to show you the continuous thread. When John's writing, he's writing in truth, he's writing in love. When he wrote Gaius, the elder of the church, he said this, whom I love in truth. So again, you cannot separate the truth from love. Here's a very key thing that we need to zero in on. Love is a person. It's not a feeling. Love is a person of light and truth. If we get the person in the right place in our life, we are going to have an infinite supply of love. And that love will bring light to us and light to others and truth to us and truth to others. Love will be an illuminating part of who we are and love will be a part of who we are. What happens is when love the person, not love the feeling, and we've got to keep, keep detoxing ourselves from that false, uh, false uh, paradigm of what love is. We need to understand that love is a person. When we let love win in us, then I win. You win. We win together. I win when I allow love to win inside of me. Love the person, okay? Love the person has to be a part of that story. So let's look at John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. We're going to finish it out today in, in the fifth chapter. Where does all of this love come from? This person of love come from? How do I get it to be a part of me? What's the... What's the code? What's the secret sauce, if you will? Here it is. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. So pause right there. He's putting a condition in there. It's not, hey, if you want to, you not want to. There's a stipulation to the promise. Everyone who believes, present active participle here. It's going on right now. It's happening in me. I'm doing this. It's, I'm believing that Jesus is the Christ. Here's what happens. Here's the promise. Has been born of God. Has been born of God. You want to be born of God? You want to know what God is and who God is? You want to be connected to God? You want to be a child of God? Then you have to connect it back to who Jesus says he is and, and embrace that. 
embrace that fully. But notice what happens whenever I'm born of God because I have believed in God. Notice what the ripple effect is. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So now what happens is I not only have the love of God in me, but I now have the love of God flowing through me that I'm loving people beyond me. And this whole idea, don't get away from the idea that he is calling us children of God. You're born of God in verse 1. Verse 2, you're children of God. In John chapter 1 verse 12 is where he first in his writings introduces this. He says, all of you, all who did, did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right. Think about a birth certificate. Think about a right of adoption. He gave the right to become the children of God. All right? That's a privilege given to you. Verse 4, back in where we were just reading. Everyone who has been born of God. So big stipulation, big thing that's got to be there. And you've got to answer that question. Have you been born of God? Are you a child of God? Remember Nicodemus? Remember Nick back at, Nick, Nick at night a few months ago in September? Did a message, shared a message from John chapter 3. Go back and listen to it if you missed it. And just the fact that here's, here's Nicodemus and he's this high muckety-muck. He has a life all together. But even he had all life all together, he still had to be born again. I don't care if you're an up-and-comer. I don't care if you've arrived. I don't care if you're at the top of the rung of ladder of life or you're at the bottom of the rung of the ladder of life. But the reality is we all must be born again. Without being born again, you can't be a child of God. Without being a child of God, you'll not have the love of God residing in you. Without the love of God residing in you, you will not have an infinite supply of light and truth flowing out from you. Again, I think you can see the domino connection here. So here's what happens. Whenever we look at John chapter, 1 John chapter 5, you're going to find a common theme. He's already used the word three other times. He's going to use the word confidence. He's going to use it here again. He's going to use the word overcome. He's going to, in fact, he's going to use the word overcome three different times in two verses. He's going to use the word victory. So when I come to you and I say today that love wins, I'm really pointing out that, hey, love can win in you and love can win in me when love is the story of my story, the love of my love. I win when love wins in me. And I don't want to live without the fullness, the depth, the breadth of his love. We've talked about quality and quantity of love. I'm not going to go back and do that again. But I want us to dwell on the fact of what Soren Kierkegaard said at the end of his, his little narrative there. Love is triumphant when it makes that which is unequal equal in love. God has this amazing ability to bring value, honor, beauty, light, truth when His love becomes a part of our love. And that's the story of us. So let's ask the answer to the question today. How do I win? If I win when love wins in me, how do I win? What do I get? What's the trophy I get? Here it is. Number one, you get a confident confident life. Okay, this is not my words. These are the words of John. And I think you'll see that really quickly. 
Now, whenever, let's talk about this whole idea of being a victor in life. Because there's a lot of people in this room and that really, in fact, I will say everyone in this room. You either feel like you're a victim or you're a victor. You're, you're you probably, let's just embrace it all. We're all victims of something, okay? We're victims of neglect, abuse, racism, sexism, um, whatever. You can, you can run the gamut out there. And I don't make light of that at all. Because I've got my wounds that I carry, okay? And we all carry these wounds. But here's the question I have to ask, you have to ask. Am I going to be live as a victim of this? Or am I going to become a victor of, over this? What will it be? What will be the story of my life? And what I'm saying is when you were born of God... That's the stipulation. When you are born of God, you become a victor over that. Those, those things don't make your life, define your life, determine how your life is. I don't care what the maltreatment, the manipulation, the victimization, the racism, the abandonment, the neglect that you have gone through, the broken trust that you've experienced. We can become victors in this. Now, what do all of these people have in common? Look at this, look at this photo. You got Roger Federer. Serena Williams, LeBron James, and Colin McGregor. What do all these people have in common? They're all studs or studettes. They're all incredibly good at whatever they do. They're all victors over with titles on top of titles on top of titles. But what else? They're all sponsored by Nike. Notice that? Nike must spend a oodles and gobs of money sponsoring these people communicating to you that whenever you become whenever you become a champion or this will help you become a champion is Nike will mark your life. Now that's a good thing if you know what the word Nike means. Let's come back to our passage of scripture cuz this will make it mean more to you. Go to verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God. Okay, again, stipulation conditional clause overcomes. If you haven't been born of God, don't expect to become an overcomer. Overcomes, circle the word overcomes, the world. And this is the victory, circle the word victory, that has overcome, circle the word overcome, the world, our faith. Who is the, who, who it is that overcomes, circle it again, the, the world, except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, stipulation on top of stipulation. Sandwiched in there between Jesus is the Son of God, being born of God, then there's this litany of overcomer, overcomer. Do what the word overcome is in the Greek language is the Greek word nike. Think about that. You want to be an overcomer? You want to be marked as a Roger Federer of life? You want to become known as the victim? Or you want to become as the overcomer, the Nike. If you go to the city of Athens today, as we're doing work in Athens right now, it's no, no, no small, in fact, we sleep right underneath the Acropolis and you can see uh, the, the Parthenon at the top of the hill. But if you go to the top of the Parthenon where the Acropolis is, uh, or excuse me, to the Acropolis where the Parthenon is, you'll find just hanging over the edge is this temple to Nike. This Nike temple is a symbol of victory. It's a symbol of victory in our minds when you're looking at Serena Williams or you're looking at one of those great athletes. It's a symbol of victory all the way back to the ancient culture. It's a symbol of a person who is an overcomer. 
a victorious one. We all face battles. And sometimes we're battles to secrets in our lives and these secrets control us. We might be able to mask it over and go out into public, mask it over and go out and go on to job and hold down a nine to five. We might be able to mask it over and keep it away from some of our family members. But eventually, whatever we're masking over will come out. It will manifest itself in us. And these secrets things really overcome us and we become victim to them instead of victors over them. I was with a church recently and they told me that the description of their people that they are seeking to reach, this is their one word statement. They're they're one that they're going after, the one that they're targeting, the one that is their primary person on their radar. And this is their statement, that he is a young addicted male who is desperate. A young addicted male. And as they were talking to me more and more about their, their, their context and where they do ministry, they were saying addiction runs rampant. But then he looked up at me and he says, an addiction runs rampant in your town too. He says, where your addiction in this town was gambling and other things, your addiction in your town is white-collar drugs. Oh, yeah, we have the hard-hitting stuff, the math, we have the cocaine, we have all that street kind of drugs. But what happens in white-collar suburbia is we get addicted to prescription drugs. Because life is so tough and life can't be handled, so therefore we mask it over with pills. I'm not making light of this. This is dark. To take medications, I take medications. But are we masking things that are going on in our life? The darkness, food can can become an addiction. Pixels can become an addiction. The things that we can't get off of, the things that we have to have with us all the time that we can't separate from, even simple things like social media. I read this past week where the University of Chicago School of Business conducted a study and found that social media is actually harder to resist than cigarettes and alcohol. I encourage you to just turn off social media and notice what kind of productivity goes up in your life and how you're less distracted. How, and then I'm, Mike, you're picking on little things. Here's what I'm picking on. I'm picking on passions and not the precepts of God. Because what happens in this world is we become addicted to our passions, to our desires, to what brings us satisfaction. And we need to understand that the passions of this world are not what we're supposed to be about. It's the precepts of God that are supposed to steer our lives. If we're going to become an overcomer, if we're going to be the Nike, go back to 1 John chapter 4, verse, uh, verse 4. This is my favorite verse in all of First John. Little children, you are from God and you have overcome Nike them. For he who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Listen, if I'm living a victim life, I'm living it on my own because God wants me to live according to his principles and his precepts. We just read verse three of chapter five. Look at verse two. Don't miss it. For this is the love of God. Now stop right there. He's going to tell us what the love of God is. By this we know that we have the lo- uh, 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 that the children of God and that we have the love of God for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. You want to know how God says I love you and you want to know how you say I love you back to God? 
taking his precepts, taking his principles, taking his commandments, and not seeing them as a burden to you, but seeing them as life-giving pathways for you. Precepts are like guardrails that keep you from going from ditch to ditch. When God says don't do something, he's saying don't hurt yourself. When he's saying do something, he's saying go bless yourself. He's trying to get us on the right path. That's why David says it so many times in just one chapter of Psalm 119. He says, lead me in the paths of your commandments, for I delight in them. For I find delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love. I will meditate on your statutes. I hasten to do them, verse 60. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Notice the heart of David. He wanted God's direction. What did John say? Your burden, your commandments are not burdensome. They're freeing. I can tell you this. From the times that I've lived a little too close to the edge, a little too close to stupid, um, I lose sleep. I get stressed, and those around me experience that. Um, I'm not in a good spot versus the times that I walk in his precepts and I listen to his rhythms and I listen to his word, it is so freeing. It is so liberating. It's not burdensome. I'm no longer a victim of society. I am now free. Listen to what Larry Crabb said, Shattered Dreams. Great counselor, great writer. Pick up his stuff and read it. It's important to remember that our addictions are not the product of psychological disorder. They are not the expressions of internal damage caused by difficult backgrounds. They are rather the fruit of the flesh. That natural tendency in all of us to fill our empty souls with some pleasure other than God. Filling our empty souls with something other than God. Obedience to God is a fruit of the spirits revealing the sweetness of Christ in our spirits so that we actually enjoy obedience more than sin. See, there is a beauty, there's a sweetness, there's a savoriness to when I obey him and I follow his precepts, it is so much better than a life of regret and fear and cleaning up messes. I win. When love wins in me, love the person, love God. When he wins in me, I win on the outside because I have a confident, victorious, overcoming Nike kind of life. Number two, I have a confident faith. Now, I want to read a couple of verses to you that probably need a little bit of interpretation, so hang with me on this because he says some things here that we need to understand in the context of first century, okay? First century, remember that. This is the one who came, verse 6, who came by water and blood. Who's he referring to? Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit of truth. Now, he's going to talk about water. He's going to talk about blood. 
And this is giving testimony to what? That Jesus Christ came. How does that give me a confident faith? Let's keep reading. And the spirit and the water and the blood, these three agree. When you look at this passage, a lot of people have interpreted it different ways. One is they see these as sacraments. Okay, the water is the baptism and the blood is the communion or the Lord's Supper. So that's what that's talking about and that's how I have new life. No, no, no. Other people see it as the end of the spear kind of thing. When Jesus, if you remember, he was on the cross and the, and, and the Roman soldier take a, took a spear. In chapter 19, verse 34 of, uh, of John, it says, And one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once came out blood and water. So the end of the spear theory. Then there's the bookend view theory, which is the one I lean towards. It's where it talks about how Jesus was born, or excuse me, John is writing in a Gnostic context where Gnosticism did not believe that God could ever put on flesh and dwell among us because flesh is evil. So therefore, there's no way that God would put on flesh and dwell among us. But what, but what, what, what John says is, no, no, no. He was born of water. And we also have the blood. Let's talk about the water for just a moment. Those of you who have carried babies full term, you know what happens right before the baby is born? There's this breaking of the water. Now, I just did the birds and the bees a little bit with your kids in the room, so you'll explain the rest whenever you get in the car on, on the way home. But whenever, and that, that aligns with John chapter 3, because in John chapter 3, if you remember, Jesus refers back to, hey, you must not only be born of water, but born of the Spirit. Okay, because John, Nicodemus was like, I'm blowing his mind here. How can I be born again? How can I go back into my mother? No, no, no. You're born of water, but you're also born of the Spirit. And so Jesus was born of water, okay, Christmas story, all the way through, his, lived out his life until he died on the cross and he spilled his blood for us. And the Spirit gave witness to his ministry the entire time. So what he's doing in one simple sentence is he's saying, hey, Jesus is God. And his life that he lived in the flesh and he came and he dwelt among us and he was born in that Bethlehem manger, that is a testimony that God came to live with us because it was a virgin-born child of God and he was here and he lived his life and he died on a cross. And my friends, that's witness of Jesus. Now, the Gnostics didn't believe that. Verse 10, look at verse 10. Whoever believes... In the Son of God has the testimony in himself, but whoever does not believe, God was made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has been born concerning his Son. So basically, he draws a line in the sand. He said, you either believe that Jesus Christ is God or you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. And if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is God, you're going to have a very difficult future. Dark, painful and hot eventually. But if you have a life in Christ, you have new life. And I love it because verse, verse 10 says, whoever, it's an open invitation to anybody who will believe. Just as it was in chapter 4, verse 15, when he said, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God. So the, the invitation is out there. Are you going to confess or are you going to believe? And in this room today, there are people who think Jesus is a good man, but they will not go to him as being God. But I will have a confident faith whenever I realize that Jesus is my 
God, He is my Lord. He is my Savior. And I win when love wins inside of me. And when He's a part of my story. And verse 12 goes on to say it like this. And this is why. Man, why do we have two teams right now on planes coming back from South Asia? Why were they there last week and hiking in the Himalayas, up near Mount Everest? Why were they there and going into the villages and, and sharing the gospel? Why? Why, why? why are we going to send a team to Athens next week on our stage? We're going to pray over them as they're going to go and spend Christmas. And when we're opening up presents, they're going to be sharing the gospel with Muslims who are refugees. And, and why, 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 why do we do that? Because of verse 12. In fact, what I wrote in the margin of my Bible is this is why I go exclamation point. Whoever has the Son has life. But whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You can't get any plainer than that. With Jesus, there is life. Without Jesus, there is not life. We've done something for since 2009 at Grace Point Church. We've taken up a Christmas offering, and I get excited about it every year because I get excited about what God's going to do. And it's try to be strategic because we want to show Jesus, and we want to share Jesus. We want to show Jesus in very practical ways. We've done things from like uh, help out in an orphanage in, in Zambia where we can have ongoing ministry. Our very first year, what we did was we helped chronic malnourished children in West Africa to get some basic uh, baby food formula for children that were dying. Every one of those situations, whether it was there or it was in the human trafficking in, in, in South Asia that we did for two years, or it was in water wells, 12 water wells in 12 months in, in Mozambique, Africa, two years ago. Every time we did that, I, it was all about showing Jesus, but also sharing Jesus. And I can remember being in one village whenever we were drill, drilling wells there and they had just opened up the well. It would just made it as, as the first day to have the well, uh, the, the water open. The imam, the Muslim imam called everyone in the village together and they said, sit down, listen to what these people have to say because whatever they have to say, we need to hear. That was the imam telling them to do that. What am I saying? Is I'm saying that God does incredibly awesome things, what we've seen in this past year in Athens. And this next year's Christmas offering is going to go back to the refugee work in Athens. But we're now zeroing in on it even more. And we're going to help the most at risk, the most vulnerable people of all the refugees. All of them are vulnerable. But we're going to zero our focus into helping to provide housing, shelter, electricity, and a safe place where we can share the gospel and their kids can get counsel. We're going to work with women and children who make up 60% of the refugees in Athens, Greece. And we're going to work with them to help them to, one, get stability in life, but two, to meet Jesus. Because you know what? When you know Jesus, you know life. When you know Jesus, you know what love is. And when you have love, you can share love and you can give love. And that's what we're going to be about. We're going to have more on that next week. So just be here for that. Verse 13, look at this. This is the beauty of this. Remember he said in verse 12, he said, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. I write these things, verse 13. To you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I was talking with somebody just after the last gathering. And they were talking about their faith and the reality that as we get older and we get, we get on in years, that how, how, how am I going to, how am I going to be certain? Here's the beauty of our faith in Jesus Christ. It's a confident faith. John wrote these things. Notice this. Not so that we would hope 
Not that we might think that we have eternal life, but that we would know. I don't have a think so, maybe so, kind of so. I have a no so faith in my God that I have eternal life through Jesus Christ. But there's also confident prayer. Confident prayer, confident communing with God. It's a confident life, it's a confident, it's a confident faith, but it's confident prayer. I win when love wins inside of me. Because what happens is God opens up the line of heaven. And I can be an immediate and intimate connection with the God of the universe. In a matter of a moment, in a blink of an eye, in the thought in my head, I can pray, pray and connect with God. There's no busy signals. There's no waiting in line, waiting on hold. Immediately, I have confidence. Whenever in the book of Hebrews, he says, we can go confidently before the throne of grace. Confidently. Three different times, three different other times, he talks about confidence in our relationship with Jesus Christ in, in 1 John. I want you to look at verse 14. It says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. I love that promise. But he not just hears us. Okay, that's good to hear from you, Mike. Thank you. Deposit that away. But he goes on in verse 15. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the request. That is a present tense. He wasn't saying in the future you're going to have it. I'm already putting it into your account. Doesn't mean you have it immediately. It may be something that you're going to get over time. Now here, I'm what I'm not saying, let me say this. I'm not a blab it and grab it, name it and claim it preacher. Where you're just going to say it and God's going to give it. It's all about you asking God and you demanding of God and you telling God what you want. No, 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 no. Don't miss this phrase. When we ask according to his will. Did you catch that? No, I don't want you to miss that. If it, have you underlined anything in this? Underline it in verse 4. Asking anything according to his will, he hears us. He wants to commune with us. John Stott said it this way. Prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or for bending his will to ours. But the prescribed way of subordinating our will to his. What did Jesus say when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying that God, he wouldn't have to go to the cross? He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What did he say in the Lord's Prayer? On earth as it is in heaven. Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, the will of God is the number one thing. It's not me getting my will into heaven. It's heaven getting God's will into me. I become formed. I know God knows more what I need than I know what I need. And what I want to do in prayer is connect with the heart of God because it's about a relationship. And he's going to do for me what is actually best for me and him and all the world together. It is about that. Let me tell you about raising our kids. And there was a time... I can remember this with Josh anyway. I think it was with the other two as well. That we could have fed our kids cinnamon toast crunch for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and we would have gotten by okay. You talk about decreasing your food bill. Uh, cinnamon toast crunch, it's, it's the bomb. If, it, if anybody likes cinnamon toast crunch, raise your hands. Okay. 
Now, somebody actually sells that product in our last gathering. And they said, hey, thanks for dropping that product in there. <laughs> sure. Send me a year supply of Cinnamon Toast Crunch then, maybe. Um, actually, I came back and dogged on it because it says it's nothing but junk. Uh, and that's all it is. I mean, then they say it's all a part of this balanced breakfast in this little picture. And then, of course, all the other healthy stuff around it. That's the bad stuff right in the middle. Um, but anyway, so I, I rant here. So the, uh, the, the cinnamon toast crunch was what they could eat all the time. Well, when I started eating healthier, I tried to introduce a little healthier concepts. And one time Lori was traveling. It was the older kids were gone out of the house. And so it's just Josh and I. And so I thought I'm going to introduce something a little healthier. So I'm going to introduce Brussels sprouts. <laughs> so, uh, I looked online, I got a good recipe and I started making Brussels sprouts. And Josh had never had, I, I don't think I'd ever had Brussels sprouts until that day. And, uh, and you know what? I burn those babies. <laughs> I burn it. They're, they're green normally, if you've ever seen them. Uh, probably most of y'all haven't even seen them. They're green. And, uh, but they came out of the oven and they were black and brown. And, but you know what? You put enough salt on those babies and you brown them enough and they're crunchy like chicken. And, uh, and we ate them. And Josh is going to be here next Sunday. So you can go up and ask him, do you like your dad's Brussels sprouts? He loved them. He loved them. You brown it, you cook it, you, you season it, you do it with the right stuff. Even the bad stuff tastes good. Why am I saying with all this? We can be like children saying, I want... Cinnamon Toast Crunch, God, would you give it to me right now? Like spoiled brats. Or sometimes we need Brussels sprouts. In fact, we need Brussels sprouts more than we need Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Um, When you're in an intimate relationship with a holy God who loves you and is the basis of everything about your relationship is his love for you and your love for him, then you want to obey him because his commands are, are not burdensome. They're freeing. You, you, you want to go with him because he will give you that confident faith. And you want to talk to him like a father would to a son, like a son would to a father, because he is listening. Would you bow your heads with me? I don't know what your diet is right now. The cinnamon crunch diet. And you like God to give it to you the way you like it. Or are you in an intimate relationship with him knowing that he knows what's best for you? He wants to provide for you. Do you even have a relationship with him today? Because if you've not been born of God, that's the number one place we start. Everything else falls in line after that. The very first words I read, everyone who believes that Jesus is Christ has been born of God. Have you been born of God today? In this room, just an hour ago, I asked that same question and a number of people could honestly say no. And I simply did this. I said, would you like to give your life to Jesus today? Would you like to pray right here and now? 
and say, Jesus, I want you to be my God. I want you to be, I want to be born of God. I want to have a confident life. I want to have, I want to have a confident faith. I want to have a confident prayer that whenever I talk to you, you're there. I want to relate to you, God. I confess you, God. If that is you today, would you just lift up your hand around the room? This is your time. I want to pray. Father God, you know the hearts of everyone in this room. We cannot escape you. You're pursuing us, but you're pursuing us because you love us. You want to be with us. You want to connect with us. You want to be our father. You want us to be your child. Father, thank you for loving us. Father, in this room right now, I pray that we'd make space. Make space in our life, in our mind. We'd not be rushing about getting out, rushing about going about life. We would be still. In this moment, listening to you as our Father, or asking ourselves the question, what's it going to take for me to become a child of God? Or may we do business with you as you're doing business with us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have some pastors across the front here, some deacons across the front. If you want to come and talk, pray with us, Uh, deacon wives, we're going to be here. We're here for you. Um, This is your time. Make space. Don't rush through this. Let's stand together.